All week long I study a passage in a different Bible, and so when I stand before you with this Bible, I have takes me a minute to find what my text is. Okay, Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27. There came to him, Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second, and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Is there life after death? Most people, you ask, will hold out to some kind of hope that there is. That this life is not all that there is. I imagine almost every funeral or memorial you have ever been to will include someone getting up and speaking on behalf of the departed and saying, I'm just so thankful they're in a better place. It appeals to our sensibilities that there must be something that transcends this life and that is beyond our earthly existence. Now, while that is the hope held by many, it is certainly not held by all. In fact, the prevailing worldview in modern academia is humanistic materialism. Humanism is the idea that mankind is the most advanced life form in the universe, and so we have the greatest intellect, and we are the source and the uh, solution to all of our problems. And materialism is the belief that everything that exists is all matter and that there is no spiritual component to humanity or anything else. So we are our biology and nothing else. We are the result of time, chance, and random processes through a long history of evolution, advancing through natural selection in the midst of a cold and indifferent universe. 
When your heart stops beating and your mind ceases to function, there is nothing left of you. That is a prevailing worldview today. It's as the philosopher Ernest Nagel once wrote, life is only an episode between two oblivions. This same way of thinking is enshrined in a document called the Humanist Manifesto, which says, as far as we know, the total personality is a function of the biological organism transacting in a social and cultural context. There is no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. Stephen Hawking, you may know that name, cosmologist and physicist, said in an interview, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Sean Carroll, a cosmologist and physicist at the uh, California Institute of Technology, said, claims that some form of consciousness persist after our bodies die and decay into their constituent atoms face one huge, insuperable obstacle. The laws of physics underlying everyday life are completely understood, and there's no way within those laws to allow for the information stored in our brains to persist after we die. So this is common thinking amongst the brightest minds of our day who are teaching at the highest institutions in our land. And there were some people in Jesus' day who believed the same thing. They didn't have a PhD in biology or physics but they were adamant in their belief that there was nothing that survived the death of the body. There was no spiritual component to man. There was no future resurrection. They were called the Sadducees. These were part of the ruling class in Israel, made up mostly of priests, and they composed the majority of the Jewish Supreme Council called the Sanhedrin. They were also the liberal scholars of their day. So they held to a belief in God, but they denied the conventional, conventional doctrines that all the Jews held at the time, which was a belief in the afterlife, the existence of angels, and some kind of eternal punishment or reward. And these are the ones who decide to approach Jesus and take their turn in questioning him. Now, if you remember, the chapter started with Jesus being challenged as to what authority he had to overturn the tables and drive out the money changers and to teach the people in the temple. That's how Luke 20 started. Because as far as the religious leaders were concerned, this was their house and they were the authority and they deeply resented Jesus being there. And so... They questioned him on the subject of authority. And then after that, Jesus spoke a parable, if you remember. And after that, they sought to trap him with a controversial political question about taxation. We saw that last week. And Jesus put them in their place. And rather than being trapped by their dilemma, he answers in such a way as to leave them completely speechless. 
But his detractors have not given up yet. In fact, this week we have another confrontation with religious leaders, and this time by the Sadducees. So here is a third attempt. Their questioning first was personal, and then it was political, and now it is theological. Luke introduces them in verse 27 this way. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now he mentions that in case his audience does not know their theology, and it's a very vital detail to make sense of this entire exchange. As I mentioned already, they, they are part of the ruling class in Israel. These were men who were wealthy, they held honorable positions in the nation, and Josephus, the historian, refers to them as Israel's aristocrats. So they were a main influence in the nation, even though their numbers were very small. They were small because they were made up mostly of priests, and that meant that they were the dominant influence in the activities at the temple. So this also means that the Passover circus that they had uh, developed over time, which Jesus had to go in and drive out, was their operation. Uh, They would have been the ones who profited from that whole enterprise, and because of what Jesus did there, they would have a concern about stopping him also. So the Sadducees were an interesting group. They not only decide, uh, denied those doctrines that I mentioned, but they denied the inspiration of most of the books of the Bible. These were Torah-only observers, meaning they held to the first five books of Moses as being authoritative and nothing else. That means the historical books they rejected, the Psalms and Proverbs they rejected, the prophets, the prophets they rejected. They also rejected oral tradition, which was a big deal in first century Judaism. And so you put all these things together and you would have the scribes and the Pharisees being at odds with one another. Very different groups of men theologically. Yet, their approach with Jesus is very similar to what we saw last time in that they want to pose to him a controversial question. They want to bring to him a long-standing debate, which is the subject of resurrection. Resurrection was not only the belief of the scribes and Pharisees, it was the prevailing idea in Israel at the time, with the exception of this group of men. Because they rejected what the Scripture teaches with the exception of the first five books, they reject the teaching of resurrection throughout those books. So let me just give you a few examples of what all of those Scriptures would say if they accepted them. I mean, what they do say. Job, uh, the oldest chronological writing that we have in the Bible is the book of Job. It predates Uh, Moses and predates Abraham. And he says in Job 19.25 and 26, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. 
And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So Job believed in a resurrection from the dead. Or how about King David? Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, David says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So clearly David is saying that God is not going to allow him to just be put in the ground and become food for the worms, but that he is actually going to be at God's right hand. Or the well-known Psalm 23. The conclusion to that psalm, David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or a very clear reference in the prophets, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Daniel says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And I could give you two dozen more examples. Just wanted to highlight a few to show you that Scripture speaks about resurrection and life after death. But what do you do with a group who only holds to the first five books as being inspired. The Torah was not exactly a treatise on life after death. It's about God entering into covenant with a people and delivering them from slavery. And it's about the various laws that he gave to those people so that they can live in relationship to him and one another. So not only do they not find resurrection in what they consider the authoritative books of the Bible, but they mocked the idea on a philosophical level. The Sadducees thought the idea of resurrection was absurd. People die, they go into the ground, and we don't see people come out of the ground. So this is their approach to Jesus. They're going to come and engage him in what has been a long-held Jewish debate between these groups. Now, we spoke a little bit about logic last week. You remember I gave you a little lesson in logic? And there is a logical device that the Sadducees are going to use here called a reductio ad absurdum. Now, what is a reductio ad absurdum? It is a form of argument in which an idea is disproven by following its implications to an absurd conclusion. Okay, so it's taking an argument to the extreme and revealing that there's an absurd consequence at the end if you hold on to that argument. And I will give you a very clear example that you have all heard in your life. Maybe some of you have used this reductio yourself. Your child says, why won't you let me do that? All the kids are doing that. And you say, 
if all of the kids were going to jump off a bridge, would you do that too? That is an example of a reductio ad absurdum. You take it to a absurd logical conclusion to show that it's a bad argument. So the Sadducees are going to use a reductio with Jesus on the subject of the resurrection. Now, I imagine this is probably their favorite arguments. They have probably scrapped with the Pharisees and the scribes before, and they pull out their best argument, which is what is found here in Luke 20, and they say, boom, gotcha. No response. Shut down the opposition. So what they do is take the concept of resurrection to an absurd conclusion, and then they sit back satisfied that they won the argument. Now let's look at their argument. Verse, we'll start again in verse 27. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second. And the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, this arrangement between the husband who dies and his brother and the widow is something in the Old Testament law called Leverite marriage. In ancient Israel, it was very important to carry on the family line because part of God's gift to families in the promised land was that they would possess land that they owned and it would never go out of their hands. It was to be passed on generation after generation. So the only time they could release the land was if they were poor and they were going to starve to death. Death. They could sell the land, more like a lease, to someone who could keep them alive and use the land. But when the Jubilee came around, which is every 50 years, they had to give the land back to that family. So God did this as a way to protect families and to keep their lineage in Israel, having a property for them. But what happens if the man dies and he doesn't have any offspring? I mean, that would be a legitimate concern. The entire family tree would be in jeopardy. His, his name would be in jeopardy. His land would be in jeopardy. It would be cut off completely. So God puts it in His law that if a man dies without having a son to carry on the name, the widow he leaves behind was to marry the man's brother and that man was now responsible for giving that woman offspring. And by giving her offspring, she could continue on, male offspring particularly, she could continue on her husband's legacy. Now, I had Richard read this earlier in Deuteronomy 25, but let me just remind you of what it says in the law. 
If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And the text goes on to describe what if the brother doesn't want to do that? He is put to shame. And all the people know that he is not a good man because he would not carry out the Leverite marriage. This was very serious to God. In fact, way back in Genesis, it was so serious that God killed a man named Onan because he said, yes, he'd take his brother's wife, and instead of procreating with her, he spilled his seed on the ground, and God struck him dead because he refused to do what he was responsible to do. So in the Jewish mind, not only do you have this thing called Leverite marriage, but in the Jewish mind, a son became an extension of the man. So it was a, a man was blessed to have many sons because the son was an extension of him, which is why you read through the genealogies of the Bible and it always talks about who the father is. Right? Oh, it's Benjamin, son of Judah. The Jews would say Benjamin, uh, Benjamin ben Judah because ben means son of. Um, so you have this really... Uh, they took... They, would take these kinds of things far more seriously than we do in our modern day in the West. And if there was an untimely death, there was one way to continue on that man's name, and that was through this arrangement. In fact, I also had Richard read from the book of Ruth because Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer in that story. That, that story is about a Leverite marriage, and it becomes the next of kin's responsibility even though he was not the brother, to carry on uh, the name of the dead husband. And interestingly enough, their son becomes the grandfather of King David. So, this is the theological angle that the Sadducees are going to use to approach Jesus and the concept of resurrection, and they're going to bring in a reductio ad absurdum argument to try to do it. A man takes a wife, and he dies. Then she marries his brother, Leverite marriage, but he dies. And then a third brother, and he dies also. I like what John MacArthur says here. If I'm brother number four, I'm getting out of town because something's not right here. Why are all these dudes dying? But a reductio is meant to be absurd, so they're taking it to the absurd conclusion. And there's a, there's a fourth brother, and there's a fifth brother, and, there's a, and so on. All seven brothers die, and then the woman dies. And then here's the punchline, verse 23. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. <clears throat> if marriage is this important covenant, so important that God would make this arrangement and call it a covenant, 
and it's assumed that in the resurrection, human relationships will survive death, then what do you do with this situation, Jesus? Who is she going to be married to? And they probably had their arms crossed, and they had a smug look on their face, and they felt very confident in their argument. And what Jesus does in response is to show them that they have faulty presuppositions, meaning they are assuming things about resurrection that are not true, and then they are bringing those into their argument. And Jesus addresses two problems in their thinking. There's two main problems in their thinking here. The first problem is it's assumed that resurrection is going to be a life that is identical to how it is now. The way we interact, the relationships that we have, the significance of family. The assumption by the Sadducees is that things are going to be just as they are today. They're just going to keep on going. Everything's going to remain intact. So Jesus deals with this in verse 34, and it says, He said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So the first thing Jesus addresses is that in the age to come, our relationships are going to be different, and that includes the most binding of all human relationships, the covenant of marriage. There will not be marriage in the resurrection. Sorry, Mormons. Joseph Smith taught that marriage was for time and eternity, and good and faithful Mormons go to the Mormon temple and they are sealed in the temple, and that is an eternal relationship. It's an eternal covenant. They will always be married forever and ever and ever, and that is a teaching of Joseph Smith and not a teaching of Jesus. And Jesus clearly refutes that right here. In the world to come, people will not fall in love and become married, nor will people who were married in this life remain married. Now this might upset some people. I know it bothers my wife because she loves being married to me. Can you blame her? I love being married to her, too. But if you think about it, some people can't conceive of not being married to someone who they've been married to in this life for 30, 40, 50, or more years. It's like, thinking of that is like thinking that part of their own body is going to be missing. Are they just going to be friends in the new Jerusalem? Will they even know each other in that eternal state? Now, I've got lots of questions about this myself. Obviously, I can't answer anything with lots of clarity, but I'm certain about one thing, and that is in the world to come, things are going to be not less than they are now. They're going to be better than they are now. 
So the, 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 the eternity that God promises us that we are going to inherit is going to be gain, and there's nothing about it that's going to be loss. So any thoughts of, what do you mean we're not going to be married? I love being married. It's not going to be something that is lost as if you're going to look back in this earthly life and say, I just wish it was that way because everything's going to be better. The love that you have for your spouse will be perfect and it will also be perfect for everyone else. You will have a perfect love for your neighbor. There will not be a special kind of love reserved for one person only like we have in this life. And I think in some sense, we're going to be married to each other. We are the bride of Christ and we are going to be married to Him, but we are also going to be having a perfect love that is going to just permeate through all of us and it is going to be so perfect that there is no special kind of love because everything is the perfect kind of love. Because we are presently limited in how we can love each other because of sin. Have you noticed that? There, our ability and our capacity to love will have no obstacles. There will be no hindrances. It will be perfect and it will be flowing through us to all. And it's going to far exceed anything we've ever known. So it's not going to be less than... And Jesus saying there's no marriage in heaven doesn't mean there's going to be some kind of loss. Now notice, he continues and gives a specific reason here for no marriage. He says in verse 36, For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, I think it's interesting how he mentions how there's not going to be marriage because they won't die anymore. What does that mean? I think he means that one of the primary purposes of marriage is procreation. And procreation is necessary because we die. And our children are in some way an extension of our life. If you think about your children, they carry on your name and your traits and your sometimes your personality and they look like you and it's like there's just this extension of your life even though yours does not remain. And Jesus is saying that covenantal relationship is not going to be necessary because procreation is not going to be necessary. No one dies in heaven. No one is born in heaven. Instead, we will be joined in perfect love to one another and will experience love in all of its fullness. Now, I think I will remember my marriage covenant here. I think I will cherish my wife in the life to come. But that special kind of covenantal relationship is no longer going to be necessary. We will all experience the greatest love imaginable, unhindered. Now, Jesus makes another comment here that needs explanation because he goes on to say we will be equal to angels. Now, this is where context is important, and I read way too many people on Facebook 
who when someone in their life dies, they say, so-and-so, is, they finally got their wings. Or now, grandma's an angel. Jesus is not teaching that we become angels. That is not biblical. It's not taught anywhere. That's not what he's teaching here. We have a greater relationship to God than angels. We become the children of God. God has redeemed and adopted us as his own. So what, what he means here in reference to angels is that we're going to be like them as far as our association to one another. They dwell in the presence of God. They experience uh, the holiness of God. They do not have any special kind of relationships that would resemble a covenant of marriage. Angels do not marry. Angels do not procreate. They dwell in the glory of God, and so someday will we. Now, I think it's really cool that Jesus mentions angels here because what's the other theological hang-up that the Sadducees have is they don't believe in angels. So, they don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in the existence of angels, and in one fell swoop, Jesus deals with both of those things in one, in one simple statement. Okay. So the first thing Jesus addresses, in the age to come, our relationships are going to be different, and these Sadducees are assuming they're going to be the same. That is wrong. Secondly, they have a false assumption that their Torah, the first five books that they say are only the ones inspired, doesn't say anything about resurrection. And it's very purposeful that Jesus does not go to the Samuel or to the Kings or to the Psalms, or to the prophets. They reject those books. They're not going to hear arguments from those books. So what does he do? He goes right to the heart of their Torah and takes them to Exodus. So he goes right to Moses and the patriarchs, and they would uphold them as true men of God. They would would uphold those Scriptures as true Scriptures. And this is what he says in verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So Jesus first shows them that relationships will be different in the life to come. And now he makes an argument about resurrection from the Torah. But what is the point that he's making here? The point he's making is, when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, he did not say, I was their God. He doesn't say, I was their God, but they're gone now, Moses, and now I can be your God. He doesn't use that kind of language. In fact, he makes an important point about the grammar of the text. Some people might see our church and say, why do you guys spend time talking about the original language? Why do you spend all this time talking about what words mean? Why do you talk about grammar and stuff like that? Because it's really important... And Jesus makes a grammatical point here to 
prove a theological point. He pulls out a te- he's pointing to the, the tense of a verb to make a theological point. When God speaks to Moses about the patriarchs, he does not use a past tense, he uses a present tense. Meaning, I am their God now. Not just I was their God back then, I am their God today. Or if I could put it another way, God comes to Moses and he says, tell the people of Israel, Abraham's God is going to free you from slavery. Who's God? Abraham's God. He's still Abraham's God. And that implies that Abraham still is. Now, if you think about the promises God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if there is no resurrection, what good is it for God to promise Abraham that he's going to give him a land and a people and all the nations will be blessed through him? What good is that if Abraham had 10, 20 more years and then he died? God tells him, look at the stars and says, your offspring are going to be as the stars. Well, who cares if he's going to be dead? Why will that matter to him? That's like your boss saying, hey, after you retire, I'm going to pay all of the employees twice what you make. Okay, well, that's great. (laughs) Thanks. I mean, that's not a great promise. Now, Abraham was never looking to a piece of land or, or the number of offspring. He was looking to the promises of God that were future. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 describes this. Actually, you know what? Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. This, of course, is Scripture way after the Sadducees. This is New Testament. But the writer of Hebrews is looking back to the life of Abraham and, and he's writing about what Abraham wanted. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. By faith, he, that's Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking for something long after he died. He was anticipating something. Now drop down to verse 13. Talking about uh, Isaac and Jacob. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Meaning the earth was not their home, and they knew the earth was not their home or at least the present earth, this life. Drop down to verse 16. Speaking of the same people, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. So the writer is pointing out that these Old Testament people were awaiting something that they would not see in their lifetime. 
They were awaiting and anticipating what God had promised for them, which was an eternal home, which requires life after death. Abraham was not looking for a piece of land in the Middle East. He knew God was preparing a city which would be everlasting. Now you can go back to Luke chapter 20. If you think about it, what good is a promise for those who are never going to see it? Abraham never saw it. Isaac never saw it. Jacob never saw it. Moses never saw it. The writer of the first five books of the Bible never saw it. If the land was the only promise. Okay, Luke 20, Jesus concludes his grammatical point by adding this in verse 38. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So again, he's punctuating his argument. He's the God who is the God of alive people. What good is God to be the God of something that is dead? That means nothing. So he, he tackles three of their major theological errors here. He addresses resurrection. He addresses the existence of angels. He addresses the immaterial part of us that survives death. God is the God of the living. How could he be the God of the dead? Being their God, being Abraham's God, implies that there is relationship there and you don't have relationship with a body. So the, 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 the scene here is Jesus just refutes their favorite argument. And yet the Sadducees are not the only ones who are there. There are others there. And notice how the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees are all united in their opposition to Jesus. But the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are at odds with their theology. And notice what it says in verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. They, they believe in the resurrection. Jesus just refuted their argument. So they say, uh, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. So these were the guys who were in his face earlier in the chapter, asking him what authority you have to be doing these things, and now they're sitting back saying, well, he made a good point about resurrection, and we agree with that point. I think this is the only time in the Gospels that any of these groups say something positive about Jesus. You can correct me after, I couldn't think of anything. Teacher, you have spoken well, they said. So he finally shuts the mouth of the Sadducees and the scribes are watching this and they acknowledge he did well. So three sets of opponents in Luke 20 and three groups silenced. This does not relieve any of their animosity towards him. We will find as we continue in the Gospel of Luke that it's only a couple days from now. This is Wednesday on the timeline. On Friday, they will have a way to arrest him and they will bring him before Pilate. So they eventually will find a way to get rid of him once and for all. 
but in the plan of God, in the wisdom and glory of the plan of God, it will be salvation for the world. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus and how His use of Scripture even teaches us how to use Scripture. His observation of details in the text is wisdom for us in how we interpret text. And I thank You, Lord, that there was no force that could stand against Him. There was no argument that could refute Him. And He, once again, is shown as being the one that they were waiting for. And we thank You, Lord, that in their rejection of Jesus comes salvation for both Jew and Gentile, for all who have faith in Him from now until the end of the age. And we pray and thank You for this in Jesus' name. Amen.